you're able to, I'd love for you to stand with me. We're going to read the psalm. Uh, it's only six verses. It's not too long. Um, but it is uh, the beginning of the entire book of Psalms. And so it's placed there on purpose. And so we'll talk about that as we get into the sermon. But let's read it together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we look into your word. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, all of us, so that we can <clears throat> see and understand everything that's going on in the text. Uh, and more than anything, Lord, point us to Jesus, our only hope that we have, um, and help us see Christ in Psalm 1. Uh, we pray that as we look at the blessed man and all that um, is described of him, that we would deeply desire to walk in that path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, that's chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, uh, after he's explained the Beatitudes, explained the gospel, and then explained how he has come to fulfill the law, he finishes with some pretty um, powerful verses. And some of those verses in Matthew chapter 7 uh, specifically verses 13 and 14, they say this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Which means out of the billions and billions of people that will all live on this earth forever, from eternity past to eternity future, as long as, not eternity, but human future and human past, um, whenever you look at all of it, he's telling us it's easy to walk down the path towards destruction because that gate is wide and a lot of people are going to go that way. But the way of Christ being the only way towards heaven, few people are actually going to find that. That's how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. And the way that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with that there's two roads um, which one are you going to be? A very solemn and serious kind of mindset. The way that he ends the Sermon on the Mount is the, the exact way that the writer of the book of Psalms begins the book of Psalms. Um, at the outset, the writer, all that he's seeking to do is the same thing that Jesus is seeking to do at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants you to know nothing is so crucial as your belonging to the congregation of the righteous. Nothing is more crucial than you knowing Christ. Nothing. You will be one of these two men in this text. You will either be the blessed man or you'll either be the wicked man. And nothing is more important in life than knowing that. You're either going to be one or the other, the blessed man or the wicked man. Calvin, who looks at the entirety of the psalm, says the main idea of this entire set of verses is this. They are blessed to apply their hearts to the pursuit of heavenly wisdom. Those who do that, they're blessed. Whereas profane despisers of God, although for a time they might reckon themselves happy in life, they might enjoy what's going on, instead they shall at length have a most miserable end, those who are the wicked. 
And so uh, it's a very solemn and very serious way. The, the Psalms, as they've been arranged, have been arranged purposefully. And Psalm 1 is set there on purpose. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why does Psalm 1 start the entire Psalter? Because as you go through the entire Psalter, which um, Jesus quoted uh, a lot. I think he quoted the Psalms more than any other book. Um, the, the writer and ultimately the Holy Spirit wants us as we go through the entire book of the Psalms, which is why we started with Psalm 1, to make this decision in our mind and in our hearts and in our heads. Are we going to walk in the path, down the narrow path of the blessed man? Or are we going to walk down the wide open gate of the wicked man? And that's it. Nothing is more crucial as you knowing this. Nothing is more important than belonging to the congregation of the righteous. And so as we go through these particular verses, uh, there's going to be three kind of big picture things I want you to see about the blessed man. And the way that the, the psalm organizes itself is verse 1 and 2 are the first thing, verse 3 and 4 are the second thing, verse 5 and 6 are the third thing. Pretty simple. Um, and so verse 1 and 2, it tells us that the direction of the blessed man's life is towards righteousness. This means as you walk through life, the direction that you're walking as a man that's in, or a woman in Christ, the direction of your life should be towards righteousness. The direction of the blessed man's life is towards righteousness. Now, it's interesting because, and he starts with negatives. He has, he has five ways in, in verses one and two that he tells us the, the direction towards your life should be towards righteousness. And he doesn't start with positives. He starts with the negatives. Verse one is the three negatives. Verse two is the two positives. But he's got five ways that he's going to explain to you the direction towards righteousness. And you can see it there in verse one. He starts with, blessed is the man. That's the big idea of the entire thing. We're gonna either be the blessed man or we're gonna be the wicked man. But he says, blessed is the man. And then he says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So if we're talking about the direction of the blessed man towards righteousness, he does not walk in the counsel of wicked. And what does that mean? What does it mean to walk not in the counsel of wicked? This word counsel is like the instruction or the teaching. So this is, but it's not in that counsel of the wicked. And so this means this is about <clears throat> the Christian man's worldview. He doesn't walk in the wicked's counsel. Instead, his worldview is not like that. The way his, his outlook or the way he thinks or the way that he forms ideas about the way of the world and what God is doing, his worldview is different than the wicked man. This means that the righteous man doesn't, his worldview is different. His walk and the way that he lives uh, in light of that worldview is not like the wicked, which means application for us as Christians. Um, we should not, and we should not think like unbelievers as Christians. Instead, the way that we think about problems, the way that we think, think about situations, the way that we approach plans, the way that we make our plans, our outlook, our worldview is not to look like unbelievers. Instead, it should be uniquely different. Unbelievers in their worldview approach questions uh, that people deal with and they seek to think, just like us, they approach a lot of the same problems, but they seek to fix those or solve those things through worldly means. This is not the case for Christians. We have to be people that are different. We don't seek the counsel of the wicked. When you're planning your day, when you're planning your life, when you're planning anything, you structure it around God and his world, and his word. Our worldview 
always revolves around God and his world. You structure it around what will give God the most glory, not what will give you the most worldly happiness. That's what the counsel of the wicked. Through any kind of Christians don't do that. We structure our lives. Our worldview revolves around thinking through any kind of decision on what brings God the most glory. Unbelievers, unbelievers have a secular worldview, but not Christians. Christians have a worldview that's centered in on Christ and his word. And so anything that ar- arrives in your life, anything that comes up in your life, it always is answered by thinking about um, how does the Bible address this? That's the first thing. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The direction of the blessed man's life is towards righteousness and he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You can see, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. And so that's number two. Whenever you're thinking about the direction of the blessed man's life, he does not stand in the way of sinners. If the first one uh, about the counsel of the wicked is talking about worldview, the second one is talking about your actual actions. What you do, not the, not the way you think, not your outlook, but then what you do. He doesn't stand with sinners. His actions are different. Like every man, he is a sinner. We all are sinners. However, his life is not dominated by sin. He hates sin. Christians hate sin in their life. We don't love sin. We don't revel in sin when we sin as believers in Christ We repent immediately and we seek to live a holy life. The sinner does not do this. The sinner loves sin. The Christian hates sin. And so that means as a believer in Christ whose life is, um, as it says, toward righteousness, you don't sin. Whenever you see sin, you run from it. You flee from it, as the Bible tells us. We're never, ever comfortable with sin in our life. As soon as we are aware of it, we want it out of our lives. And if you're in it right now, stop doing it by the power of the Spirit. Kill the sin in your life. If you're in Christ and you're forgiven of all your sin, you have the power to stop committing that sin by the power of the Spirit. And that's really good news. That's really good news. The gospel is is good news that you not only have been forgiven of your sin, but that you have been given the power to overcome indwelling sin in your life. And so the second thing we see is that he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. His worldview is different. His actions are different. But you can, if you can go on, he says he doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. And so if the first one we're thinking about worldview and the next one we're thinking about actions, here we're thinking about the company you keep, the people that you surround yourself with, those to which he would say he belongs to. The way that I think they say it, the cool kids now, uh, these are my people. Or maybe it's even my peeps now, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not cool enough. Um, but the point is, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. It's about the company that he keeps. He doesn't sit with scoffers. Christians, of course, have friends that aren't Christians. This is what Jesus did. He incarnated himself and dwelt among us, and we're all, we're all sinners. And then when he was here, he said, I've come not to seek the healthy, but those who are sick. And so the Pharisees who thought they had no sin problem, he generally had some pretty harsh words for them, but he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. And so I'm not saying the company you keep should not be with sinners. Of course it should be. As a matter of fact, should have friends 
who are sinners, who are unbelievers, so that they can proclaim the gospel to them so they can come to Christ. But when they do it, Christians have the wisdom not to partake in the sin or the debauchery with them. We don't do it with them. We are with them, we love them, and we are friends with them, but we don't belong to them. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Our primary company then is Jesus and the church. God has placed you within a church as your family. You have a family, your physical family that, you know, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your kids. You have a family, and your church family is just as important. God has placed you in them, and so the company you keep primarily is your church family, and that's how you um, are with Christ. Now, with that, of course, um, you still interact with your church family with this lost world so that you can tell them um, about Jesus. But living the blessed man towards righteousness means that you don't sit in the seat of scoffers, that your primary company you keep is with believers who encourage you, and then together you go out and proclaim, proclaim Christ to the lost world. Now, I want you to notice the progression because it's important. The, the unrighteous, wicked man has a progression here. He's walking, he's standing, and then he's sitting. And we shouldn't miss that. First he's walking, then he's standing, and finally he's so comfortable from his worldview to his actions and to the company he keeps. He's so co- comfortable with these people that he's finally sitting with these wicked people. And Calvin says, this wicked man is so led by Satan, step by step, farther and farther and farther astray, until these unbelievers, these wicked men, rush headlong into open transgression. And he places these wicked men at the top, at the seat, to which the metaphorical expression he designates this, he uses the word obduracy, which I had to look up, it means stubbornness, um, produced by the habit of a sinful life. Meaning, you get so you're walking, you're standing, and you're finally sitting in, in that sin, and you become so stubborn and so involved in it, so um, used to it, that now it is the habit of your entire life. That's what it's saying of the wicked man, which means that's not the truth of us. Now, I said the first verse says the three negatives. We've Totally against all marketing, right? The writer is, is, is going against all marketing campaigns and starting with negatives. Now he's going to tell us, as we keep going in this number one, a couple positive things about, uh, a couple positive things. But I, I want to say one more thing about this righteous man. He is countercultural. He does not go with the cultural flow. And the reason why is because, fast forward over to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is what's true of us. Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. So we're not conformed to the, to the world. Instead, we're transformed by Christ, and now we're wholly different. If verse 1 was the negative side, verse 2 is the positive side, the other two. And it says, but his delight. And so we need to notice that but his delight is key. It's, no, it's following that God brings us, and only God alone truly brings us happiness and delight. Not sin, not sin. Sin never brings happiness. Sin never brings delight. If it does, it is just for a second and fleeting and fading. And as soon as it's over, we've all experienced this. We regret it immediately and we hate, we hate everything about it. Oh, why did I do that? I'm so stupid. I feel terrible now. But his delight, 
is, and then he tells us the only delight that's possible, the only true happiness that's possible is in Christ. And it says, going on about the righteous man towards righteousness. D, you can go ahead and put it up. His delight is in God's teaching instruction or doctrine. Now it says here, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That, that word law is the Torah, and usually the word Torah refers to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, and that is um, generally what the word Torah means. But here it doesn't just mean the, the rules of God. It means the totality of the doctrine of God that's b- being instructed to us and taught to us regarding uh, God and his word. It's referring to the whole of his teaching, instruction, and, and doctrine that God's word provides to us. And so he delights in God's teaching, instruction, and doctrine. We delight in the totality, totali- I can't say it. He delights in the totality, that's it, of God's word. We love everything about God's word and everything that it teaches us. Everything. Now, sometimes that's hard to say because it teaches some things that I feel like in my flesh or in my human side or in my you know, ignorance, I don't understand that. I don't know if I like that. But it doesn't matter, right? Instead, <laughs> it's not my decision to decide whether I like God's word or not, right? It's there. He's good. He's infinitely more wise than we are. So everything he says and does is always good. And so it is good. And so I should delight in it. The whole of God's word then therefore is to be delighted in by the man of God. The Christian loves then therefore to think and ponder on God's will and God's word. Do you love to think and ponder on God's word and God's will in your life? Do you love to just sit around and think about the deep things that the word tells us? At its core, the Christian man wants to, with his entire life, do what the Word of God says. Banality, triviality don't really uh, concern us. They don't really things, they, they aren't really things that ultimately are, we find interesting. Maybe for a moment, but then after that, we're like, this is, this is just so, you know, bland. This is so, bleh. this isn't God. This isn't about Jesus. I don't really... I'm not really interested in this. Instead, I have an ongoing preoccupation with the word of God, not these triviality things in the world. We don't buy into, believers, we don't buy into how the world seeks to redefine what the Bible actually says either. The Bible says it, and I'm fine with it because I delight in God's teaching. Um, We're not bothered whenever the direct teaching of the Bible makes us sound ancient, or prehistoric, or unfamiliar with the times. How can you think that? That's a prehistoric thought. How can you really believe that? That's, a, that's an ancient belief. What's wrong with you? Or you're unfamiliar with the times of today. We're not bothered with these critiques because we love the word. We delight in all of the thing, all of the word that he has for us. We don't feel the need. Christians don't feel the need. This man doesn't feel the need to apologize for God or his word, nor does God want us to, to apologize for his word because it's God's word and he doesn't need for us to apologize for his word because it's always right. And so we don't need to make it softer or more palatable or less controversial. We need to be winsome. We need to be loving. We need to be Christ-like, but we don't have to soft pedal or rearrange the Bible 
to try to make people feel more comfortable with it. It's his word, not ours. God wrote it the way he did on purpose, and we should refuse to apologize for it. Because this is the way towards righteousness, is loving and delighting in all of the teaching, instruction, and um, beliefs that's given to us in the Bible. God has said it in his word, and it's right. Not following his word is wrong. Following his word is right. Christians should not apologize for loving his word and wanting to do what his word says. This is because he wants us to live a righteous life and be blessed. So that's the fourth thing that we see. The fifth thing we see about the righteous man as he goes towards righteousness is that he meditates on God's word. He doesn't just delight in his word, but he meditates on God's word. Other religions have hijacked the proper way to think about meditation. Other religions have hijacked the proper way, oh, exactly, because I'm not other religious, <laughs> but in my, in my brief understandings of it, the process of meditation is about emptying your mind of everything to reach, I don't know, zen? Who knows? Uh, reach some kind of state of bleh. So as long as you everything's out of your mind, then you're good. This is not Christian meditation at all. It's, it's the exact opposite of this. Christian meditation is um, speaking and filling your mind. Psalm 19 verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, so the words of my mouth, I'm, I'm, as I'm meditating with my heart, I'm actually speaking with my mouth. Meditation does involve speaking. It involves filling my mind with your word. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This means for Christians, meditation means engaging our mind intellectually with the text of Scripture. And it's not being silent necessarily. It's pondering and thinking the Word of God, filling your mind with the Word of God. It's all centered in on the Word of God. But um, the righteous man or the blessed man that's living his life towards righteousness means not only does he delight in the Word of God, but he also is constantly meditating on the Word of God. One man named George Mueller, this is a little lengthy, but it, it's good. He talked, uh, he wrote on how and why he meditates on God's word. And this is what he said. This is what he does before breakfast. The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend to every day is, right when I wake up, before I even get to breakfast, is to have my soul happy in the Lord. I need to have my soul happy in the Lord before the, the day even starts. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, how I might get my soul into a happy state, um, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished, not to do, but to be. For I might seek to set the truth of God before the unconverted, before I might do that, I might seek to benefit believers, I might seek to relieve the distressed, I might seek in other ways to behave um, as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet nothing, and yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in the right spirit. Before the time my practice had been, at least for 10 years as a habitual thing, to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself over to the reading of the word and 
to meditation on it. And thus my heart might be comforted and encouraged and warmed, warned and reproved and instructed. And that thus, whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into an experimental communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. The first thing I did after asking in a few words uh, the Lord's blessing upon the precious word was to begin meditation on the word of God, searching, as it were, every verse to get a blessing out of it. Not for the sake of public ministry of the word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated on. So I didn't read the Bible just so I could go share it with somebody so I had a word for them. But instead, I did it for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably is this, that after a few minutes my soul has been led now into confession and to thanksgiving and intercession and supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditation, and meditation turned me immediately into prayer. When thus I have been a while making confession and intercession and supplication or Given thanks, I go on to the next words in the verse, turning all as I go into prayer for myself or for others as the word leads me. But thus, but it's still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. The result is this, that there has always been a good deal of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and intercession mingled with my meditation that my inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am now in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart for Christ. This is what the righteous man should do. Meditate on tates. So let's notice, we should notice the frequency to which this is done. Day and night. See how it says there at the very end? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, verse two. So we're gonna amend that and say he meditates on God's word day and night. So I'll just say it as straightforward as I can. (laughs) Um, A lot of times we're challenged to make sure we start our day with at least 10 minutes of Bible reading and then you've got the other 23 hours and 50 minutes to do whatever you want the rest of the day. That's not exactly the way that this is portraying it, right? The entire day is to be centered in on the word of God. All of your hours. You're to be day and night thinking about God's word. It doesn't mean that you aren't allowed to do something else, right? You have to go to the bank. It's not like you have your phone and you're reading the Bible as you're trying to work with the teller. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying the point, though, is... um, God isn't just like, oh, you gave me 10 minutes. The rest of the day, all yours. Whatever. You know, it's kind of even. The the, the psalm is telling us that as a believer in Christ, I delight in his word. And since I delight in his word, 10 minutes isn't enough. I also need to meditate on his word as much as possible. I need to be in it as much as possible. Delight in his word should not lead to a quick 10 minutes and then I'm good. As much as I can, I want his word. It means sometimes at night, you don't catch out or watch the next four episodes of the binge thing. You just read the Bible. You just read the Bible. You can watch your show. God's fine with that as long as it's, you know, not satanic or whatever. But, 
But the point is, like, I want the Lord and his word. This is what the, the blessed man's life towards righteousness looks like. That's verses one and two. Dale Davis ends with this question, this first little section. Total immersion in the word of Yahweh forms the basis of the believer's life and his pleasure and his preoccupation. So which one defines you? The counsel of the wicked or the Torah of Yahweh? Which one do you want? The counsel of the wicked? Which one drives you? Or the Torah of Yahweh? Counsel of wicked in verse one or the law of the Lord in verse two? That's the first uh, thing that we see where we have the direction of the blessed man is towards righteousness. In verses three and four, there's a switch and he's gonna give us the description of the blessed man's life and it's towards faithfulness. The description of the blessed man's life is towards faithfulness. Now, in the Hebrew here, there's a little bit of a, of a shift. So in verse three, uh, it says, he is like a tree. Um, in the Hebrew, it's and he shall be. The and, it's connecting verses two to ver- verses one and two to verses three and four. And it's a picture of trying to say the blessed man in verses three flows out of and is the result of the man who's in the word of God in verses two. So the and is trying to connect it and say, if you are in the word of God and then you're the blessed man, this is what it's supposed to look like. So if I'm going to describe to you in verses three and four this, this blessed man, you need to realize it's because he is centered in on the word of God. He loves the law. Uh, we should realize verses three and four is a succinct summary of a Christian. So he's not troubling himself with get, cluttering up his, his words here with any qualifications. No howevers and neverthelesses. Just, oh, and, but there's an exception in this little case. None of that. He's just, here's the straightforward summary of how it's supposed to be. And you can find your exceptions and I would, you know, qualify. But of course, here, none of that. He's just, this is what it looks like. A straightforward, succinct description of what the blessed man's life towards faithfulness looks like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in his seasons and his leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. There he is. Verse four, the wicked aren't so, but they're like the chaff that the winds drives away. It's a straightforward picture of what faithfulness looks like. And we'll look at, there's five, five things of this description of a, of a man's life towards faithfulness. First one is that he's planted. He is like a tree. So he starts with the tree and he's wanting to say, you know, this is a metaphor and this metaphor is saying, look like, um, comparing it to a Christian, he's describing what the Christian's life should look like in light of how this tree is interacting with all these things. And it says that he's planted, which means he has stability in his walk with God. He's planted. He has stability. Do you think of yourself as planted in your walk with God? Do you think of yourself as stable in your walk with God? This man, he's planted and he's stable. The writer is describing for us the ideal believer and he wants you to plant yourself in the Lord. He wants you to be stable. Of course, this is only possible and given to us in Christ because of the gospel. Jesus has um, planted himself in us, forgiving all of our sin, declaring uh, stability in our walk with God because we have been forgiven of all of our sin and now we can walk forward because of our justification in sanctification. 
We can walk forward being more Christ-like because of the fact there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Planted. He is planted. The next thing is planted by streams of water. So if he's planted, he has stability. You can go to the next one. He also has streams of water, which means he has vitality. What does water do for trees? It keeps it alive. It keeps it vital. And so he's saying the life of a believer is he's not sometimes away from the streams of water and sometimes he's planted by the streams of water, which means he has vitality. Do you think of your walk with God? Do you think of your walk having vitality? Would you say day in, day out, your walk is like streams of water? Streams of water is insinuating that you're continually watered. It's planted by streams of water. You're daily being nurtured. You're daily growing while the water is is growing you. Notice the gospel doesn't plant this man in the desert. He plants him right here by the streams of water. Jesus' forgiveness of sin and the declaration of justification over you. Innocent, here is my righteousness. Whenever he does that, it means that you revel in and you love the good news of Jesus so much that you can't get over it. And so you have a description of your walk with Jesus towards faithfulness as vital. You're stable and you're vital. But also, he's planted like streams of water, and then it says, yields its fruit in season. So three, He yields fruit and has productivity in his walk with God. He has productivity. Do you yield fruit? Your walk with God is productive. You are supposed to yield fruit. There's no question about it. You are destined for productivity. Every Christian is destined for productivity. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount right after he said the narrow and the wide path. And then he says, John 15, 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says it this way, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every believer is destined for productivity, destined to yield fruit. In the gospel, go bear fruit for Jesus. Go make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go preach the gospel, Romans 10, 15. Be the feet that bring the good news of the gospel. This is what it's true of us. We are um, a blessed man towards faithfulness. So if you're like, well, I don't, I don't feel like I'm very productive. The trajectory of your life is towards faithfulness. Being faithful means bearing fruit. So start. That's your trajectory. You are destined for it if you're in Christ. So he yields fruit and has um, a productive walk with God. And then it says, and its leaf does not wither. He does not, you can put up number D. He does not wither. 
which means he has durability in his walk with God. Is your walk described as durable, enduring through all times? Ups and downs, enduring through all times. There are ups and downs. Here's the, the simplest way to think about it. There are always ups and downs in the Christian walk. The one thing that there cannot be is an end unless you die. If you're still alive and there's an end, you withered. And you're not, it, your walk wasn't durable. Jesus told a story about how to understand this. This is what he said. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed some seeds, they fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, and they didn't have much soil, and immediately sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. When they had no root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on the good soil and produced some grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, ears, let him hear. Those that don't endure to the end, even though there's ups and downs, means that their faith fell on the path or the rocky ground or the thorns. That's why they walked away from Jesus. Whether it was 10 years or 20 or 10 minutes, the path, the rocky ground or the thorns, that should pain us, especially if we knew them. It tears my heart apart to think about the people that have walked away from Christ that I've known. But those that are in Christ, they don't wither. They have durability. They go to the end, as Matthew 24, 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And those are the ones that fall in the good soil. Now, again, this writer is not having, he's not stopping with qualifications and neverthelesses and howevers. He's telling you this is a summary statement of how it's supposed to be. And so, those when we're describing a blessed man's life towards faithfulness is he endures to the end. He, his heart, is the good soil. So pray, if you're in Christ right now, that you'll stay in Christ forever. And I don't think you can lose your salvation. I'm not one of those lose salvation guys. But nevertheless, if there's an ups and down and an end and you're still alive, then see 1 John 2, 20. They walked away from us because they were never of us so that we would know that they were never of us. But if you know people who seemingly has their heart described as the path, the rocky ground, or the thorns, don't apologize for God's word. Help them see the good news of, of what Christ has done for them so that they would endure to the end. But what's described of the, of the man of God um, who's walking towards faithfulness is his walk is durable. It lasts through all times. So it says this, he's planted like the streams of water that yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. And it says, and all that he does, he prospers. All that he does, he prospers. Last one on this one. All he does prospers and he has prosperity in his walk with God. Is Fudd gonna preach the pro- prosperity gospel? I'm not. Don't worry. That's not what it means. It's not saying that you're gonna be loaded. Um, this is not... This is not the prosperity gospel, but I'll ask it this way. Does your walk with God prosper? Think spiritually prosper, not financially prosper. Spiritually prosper. This means that the whole 
of your trajectory spiritually walking with Christ at the end of your life should result in flourishing. That's what he's saying. Calvin just says it this way. He obviously meant nothing more than the children of God constantly flourish and are always watered with the secret influences of divine grace so that whatever befalls them um, in, in, is conducive to their salvation. So it's talking spiritually. We will endure to the end and stay saved because of Jesus. We will prosper in our walk with God to the end. So that's, that's the first five descriptions as he's talking about this blessed man towards righteousness. But we still have verse four. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked are like chaff. Calvin says, God will drive them hither and thither with the blast of his wrath. Verse four is very abrupt and very short. Five metaphorical, deep kind of descriptions about the man, the tree that's planted, one line to planting the wicked, like chaff. There's not much you can say about chaff. If the tree, if the tree represents stability and vitality and productivity and prosperity, the chaff depicts rootlessness and ruin. And he's putting it out there like Jesus did in the end of Matthew 7. Are you going to be the blessed man or are you going to be the wicked man? Lastly, the destiny of the blessed man is heaven. The destiny of the blessed man is heaven. Verse 5, therefore, and the therefore is indicating that the psalm is heading somewhere. Verses 1 through 4 is heading somewhere for us. Therefore, and so based on what we've read, and when we say heading, I mean physically heading. The whole thing's heading somewhere for Christians, namely heaven. Like, therefore, this is heading somewhere to a physical location where Jesus resides, where we will, if we're believers, will be with him one day. Therefore, the wicked will not stand. There it is, in the judgment. This is the final judgment. This is why Psalm 1 is so serious and so solemn. The psalmist is asking this. Blessed man, wicked man, whichever one you are, what are you going to do when the end comes? What are you going to do when it all is over? You might be having fun right now. You might think that everything's going your way. What are you going to do when the judgment comes? This is when Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. The one that endures to the end will be the sheep. Those that do not and those that never knew him will not, will go into eternal destruction. This verse, um, these verses state what is the destiny of the wicked. So these verses only state the destiny of the wicked. So what I'm going to do is, as they state the destiny of the wicked, I'm going to take them and turn them positively for the destiny of the blessed. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We know, I know they have that little sentence, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I'm going to finish with that. But he, he does say at least three things there about the way of the, of the uh, wicked, and he states them negatively. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That means they have no justification. They have no hope for justification. They will not stand in the way of the judgment. Therefore, the destiny of the blessed man, whose life is heaven, the blessed man is totally justified by Jesus. We do have a hope. This is the amazing news of the gospel. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. I just need to read Paul. I can't say it better. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive, be received by faith. And so the blessed man is totally justified by Jesus because the wicked man will not stand. He has no justification. Next line, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. If that's the case for the wicked man, he has no communion. He has no community. He has no one around. The wicked, nor will the sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. He has no communion with the righteous. Conversely, the blessed man then, therefore, is given the gift of the church. We do have a communion in the congregation. For communion, community, sharing our souls with and doing the great commission with. Exclamation point. Got excited when I wrote that. Because this is the amazing gift that God gives us, that we get to be a part of the church. Uh, I, could, I could preach eight sermons on the church, but I'll just read one little verse. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So be an affectionately desirous of you, Paul. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our own pasuche, our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. By the way, when Paul wrote that, he knew the Thessalonians for 15 days. And so being affectionately desirous of you, I've never looked at most people and said, I am, I'm just affectionately desirous of you. Paul in 15 days looks at these people and said, I am so affectionately desirous of you that I'm not only willing to share the gospel with you, the greatest news ever, I'm willing to share my soul with you. That's what's provided to us in the church. Communion, community, sharing our souls and the opportunity to do the great commission with other people. The blessed man has that. That's, that's the destiny that we're with others in heaven. And then it says this, last line, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. That means they have no hope. They will perish. They have no hope. Conversely, conversely, the blessed man is the only one with an eternal hope. We actually have a hope, and his name's Jesus. The blessed man is the only one with an eternal hope. Now, I'm hoping that the word of God will do its work here because I have several verses selected through the New Testament just to read to you about how Christ is our hope. He needs our only hope. Romans 5, 2. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Galatians 5, 5. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart and light that you saints. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. Colossians 1.23, indeed, if you continue stable and steadfast, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed under all creation and under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Titus 2.13, waiting then, therefore, for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 3.7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The wicked man has no hope because he, as it says, he will perish. But we have an eternal hope. Conclusion, 
right there in verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the blessed man. He knows your way. So if you don't listen to anything, if you've you've forgotten everything I've said today, listen to this. This might be the most important thing that you need to hear. If you need any encouragement at all, hear these words. God is intimately and personally concerned about every step of your life. Everything going on with you, he's intimately and deeply concerned about every step you are taking. He deeply cares for you. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And if our God cares about every step we take in life, then how much more than therefore does he care about the step we take into the judgment? That's why this psalm is so serious. So how does Psalm 1 point us to Jesus? The first word of the psalm is blessed. The last word of the psalm is perish. It's one or the other. Blessed or perish. And the only way that we know is if we've trusted in Jesus. Jesus, and here's how it's the most important thing. How do, we, how do we see Jesus in Psalm 1? Everything that's been described of you, Jesus has done perfectly for you. You can't do those things. But he has and, do, and has done them. And they're all available for you now because of the gospel. And so when you hear all those descriptions and you're overwhelmed, take heart, sinner, The Lord has declared you righteous and provided everything you need in the gospel. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Because Jesus is the perfect blessed man and he lived perfectly. He has now imputed uh, this to us by faith. And this blessedness of his now makes us the blessed man because of the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that we would approach this psalm with the solemnity that um, it's calling for. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for writing this. Thank you for providing all that we need in Christ. And so, Lord, we, uh, we ask for those that might not know you this morning that they would trust in you that they would see there's only one way or the other, the blood, and they would see that's for them the gospel and understand that Christ died for them and was resurrected, defeated Satan, sin, and death, and provides for them eternal life, and they would trust in Christ. And for those that are believers in Christ, that they would be encouraged by this word, that they would seek to have these things in their life, all the things that we discussed through these six verses, they would want to walk in these things, because this is what you want for them in their life. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.